Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Oh, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program sponsored by the Holly Street Church of Christ. Today, you've got Jeff and Brian, your regular co-hosts with you today. And we're going to wrap up a multi-podcast series on the traditions of men versus the Word of God. Any intro, Brian, you'd like to throw into the mix? Well, our hope is that this has been beneficial in taking a look at, you know, what some of the religions that many of us are familiar with, or at least have heard about in the world, and just kind of saying, hey, what, what do they believe compared to God's Word? What we've tried to do, Brian, for our listeners, uh, and this is a little bit of a really brief recap, is look at the general canopy of what might be called Christianity and kind of examine various major aspects of it, you know, various religious groups. If I remember correctly, our first podcast was more focused on Catholicism, Roman Catholic Catholicism, as well as Eastern Orthodox Catholicism. If I remember right, our second episode was more about Protestantism you know, with Lutherans and Baptists and Methodists and Episcopalians, etc. After that, we focused to some degree on some of the more extreme or unusual religious groups, often using the term cults, like, you know, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists, etc. Today, we're going to kind of wrap up our series by looking at religious groups that are somewhat, I'll say, harder to classify. You might call them interdenominational. You might call them non-denominational. You might call them community churches. Uh, they're sort of like a, a blend uh, that is not really tied in with a particular denomination, you know, coming out of the uh, the Protestant Reformation, but is perhaps more of a blending or a lot of commonality that have members from these various, perhaps, uh, denominations in this more of an interdenominational or all faiths or community kind of arrangement. So that's where we're going to be uh, focusing on today. So Brian, you want to talk about general traits of these religious groups? This is really one of those subjects, if you will, or evaluations that's very tied to the United States. You know, certainly in other countries, you might be seeing some of these same trends But in the United States, we've been seeing this for the last 20 years, and that is, you know, there are now a lot of modern religions. And in our first episode in this series, we were talking a little bit about community churches and how because there were small towns where, you know, like the Presbyterian, the Baptists, the Lutherans, and so forth didn't have enough members to fill their churches, over time they started forming community churches or what we might call all-faith churches so that people could worship together and they pretty much had to, to accept differing beliefs. If you're going to bring in a, several different religions into a common community church, and you have to allow people to believe what they believe. And so you'll see when it comes to these types of modern religions that they often are all-faith churches that have, once again, members with many beliefs. Or when you look at the titles they take on, they all have community or Christian in their name. Uh, often, in fact, very, very common for them to have one main leader who they call the pastor. Uh, There is, you know, when it comes to worship, there's a lot of focus on how that worship makes you feel. And so you'll see if you were to attend or watch one of these live stream type services online that they're very emotional. They'll call them spirit-filled 
services and will claim that the Holy Spirit's actually, you know, indwelling them. Certainly with the Pentecostals, you see that and you'll, you know, that it's causing their bodies to react in certain ways, those kinds of things. Don't We don't see any of that as it relates to worship in the scriptures uh, in that way. Uh, oftentimes, and this is really common in all false religions, they will take elements of the old law and elements of the new law, or we might say the old and new covenants, and sort of mix them together. You definitely see that with the Catholic Church. And a lot of times, you know, this carries over into these all-faiths type religions. Uh, they often have multiple ministries, as we kind of touched on briefly earlier. If you go to their website, you'll see they have a prison ministry and a youth ministry and a single mother's ministry and all these different ministries that are not mentioned in the Bible at all. They often are involved in community outreach, and so they'll partner with organizations in the community to serve meals to people. If you speak to people in these religions, they'll say, look at all the good that we're accomplishing. How can you possibly say this is wrong? Well, it's not authorized by Scripture, and we're certainly not saying it's wrong to go help people that need food. But the Bible makes it clear that's up to us individually to support organizations that do that, non-religious organizations, or we ourselves take on those responsibilities and go feed those who are hungry. It's not the responsibility of the church to do that for non-saints. The scriptures are set up so that saints or Christians help each other, but are not responsible for the communities that they live in at large. And so that would be a conflict with the scriptures as well. And then normally, if you examine their doctrines, just like we were talking about with the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and other religions that we've looked at, is they often teach a mixture of truth and error. What I mean by that is that if you were to sit and listen to a sermon that their quote-unquote pastor preaches, yeah, there's going to be scripture and a lot of verses in there. So you'd say, okay, well, hey, they're going to the Bible. But they'll also mix in worldly views that you will not find in the scriptures. So, Jeff, that's just kind of a you know our overarching framing, if you will, of these types of modern religions today. Right. And, you know, some people may refer to it as the community church movement. As you said, a lot of them will be what they claim to be non-denominational, so not necessarily tied to the Protestant Reformation and the major groups coming out of that process, like Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, etc. More of a, uh, a broader, uh, perhaps, if you want to use that term, non-denominational. And so in some ways they've gotten away from, you know, I am of Luther, <laughs> I am of Baptist, you know, I am of Methodist. But as we'll see, as we kind of go into our next section, a lot of them share very common doctrines and practices that just uh, are, are not according to the scriptures. For example, one of the things, and this is perhaps a little bit more on the subtle side, as Brian said a few moments ago, most of these organizations are led by a single person. And that person typically has a title of pastor. As we go into the New Testament pattern, what we tend to see two things. One is that the leadership uh, at the you know, local congregational level is a plurality, and that pastor is a term, along with several other terms we'll, we'll mention in a few moments, that applies to a specific group of people that have specific qualifications. And I know this is going to involve a little bit of Greek, so, you know, hang with me here. When you see words like pastor uh, or shepherd, now that comes from a Greek word, uh, poimen, you may also see words like elder or presbyter or bishop, etc., these terms. 
What's interesting is you can see these terms basically are interchangeable uh, depending upon what is being emphasized, either a level of maturity like elder or shepherding with the word pastor. You know, a good verse that illustrates that is Acts chapter 20, uh, verses 17 through 28. If you notice in verse 17 of Acts 20, uh, and this is Paul from Miletus, word to Ephesus and called to himself the elders of the church. Skip on down to verse 28 when he's talking with them. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's a word that can also be translated bishop. To shepherd, there's our word for pastor, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So within the immediate context, elders, overseers, shepherd, pastors, bishops, same group of people, same group of people. The other thing I might mention is when you see this group of people mentioned within the scriptures, within the New Testament, the references always seem to be plural, a plurality, multiple. Titus, uh, commanded by Paul, point elders in every city, Titus 1.5. Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church. 1 Peter 5, uh, verses 1 through 5, you know, Peter talking as a fellow elder, is commanding them, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then goes on, verse 5, talks about, you know, submitting yourselves to your elders. Again, plural. Interesting. Ephesians 4.11 uh, is referring to pastors. And teachers, again, pastors, an alternative synonym for, you know, elders, bishops, uh, etc. And that even in that context of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, pastors is distinguished from teachers. So, in, in some ways, distinguish those who are in charge of the congregation as shepherds, bishops, elders, pastors, distinct from those who are teaching, evangelizing, preaching, etc. Their work uh, as we've already noted, shepherd the flock which is among them, serving as overseers, First uh, Peter 5.2. Certainly includes, you know, teaching and making sure God's truth is taught, uh, making sure false teachers don't come into the church. And, you know, elders can certainly also be teachers and evangelists. And yet we'll see there are you know, certain qualifications. As mentioned in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, you know, there are certain qualifications. They are to be men. They are to be married. They are to have children, etc. And a lot of modern-day pastors, you know, in community churches or other churches as well, you know, don't meet those qualifications, even though they're called pastors. Uh, the other thing I just might mention is, you know, within the structure of the New Testament church, you know, we talk about you know, the elders like we've been doing as well as deacons who are serving in that capacity. Uh, there's a lot of other positions that you don't, that you encounter in, in modern religions that you don't encounter in you know, the New Testament. A, a couple examples, praise leader, music director, uh, etc., which seems to point to additional official positions that the New Testament didn't have. So something to keep in mind, proper leadership within the Lord's right any thoughts to add there yeah good point it's just another example of once again people will put positions in place and say well it's accomplishing good 
We're proclaiming God. We are praising God. How could this be wrong? Well, the Bible also, when it comes to worship, really gives us clear direction and how the worship should be conducted. And so when we let's just start out by kind of looking at this point that we made early on as it relates to modern religions, and that is this appeal for a more emotional environment. And so I have a statement here from just, you know, a typical modern church, and, and they'll say, you know, this is a a church called Harvest is what they call themselves. And it says, worship experiences at Harvest typically last 75 minutes and are like parties that you're always invited to that can't be described in words, but must be experienced. You can come dressed just as you are in your Sunday's best or in jeans and a t-shirt, and we're not going to judge you. At worship experiences, you'll find people of virtually every race, culture, ethnicity, and background. We won't do anything to embarrass you, but we will do everything we can to make you feel welcome. Harvest Worship will lead you in worship with diverse and passionate music, student ministries, Harvest and Harvest Kids offers a fun and safe, secure environment for your kids and teens. You'll leave energized, encouraged, inspired, and full of God's word from Bishop Foreman's practical, funny and life-giving message. So you see several terms within that statement of what their church is all about, you know, passionate, energized, inspired, all of these different experiences, it says worship experiences that really focus on the emotional. And as I mentioned earlier, if you were to watch one of these worship services, you'll see people jumping up and down and hands raised. And so, you know, once again, when you have that kind of emotional energy, it's hard to tell people, well, that's not authorized in Scripture. Now, that's not to say that there isn't an emotional element in worship. There certainly is. But let me, let me first say that, you know, when they talk about how they welcome every race, culture, ethnicity, background, and so forth, well, the gospel is for all. And so we would all agree that the gospel is for every race, culture, ethnicity, and background. In fact, Peter over in Acts chapter 10, and this comes from the New American Standard, says beginning in verse 34, and opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And so the gospel isn't exclusionary. It is welcoming to anyone who's willing to follow God's word. And so what's interesting, though, is that we can all agree on that element, but acceptance by God also requires obedience. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And so the difference between the Lord's church and a lot of these modern religions is they're willing to accept you if you're in sin, if you're in an adulterous marriage, if you keep some of God's word, but not all of it. But the Bible makes it clear we have a responsibility to follow all of it. Now, one thing that you'll also see, and in fact, they admitted in this statement that I just read, is that there are often musical instruments, dancing, charismatic songs, once again, intended to generate emotion. Now, the focus of the worship for a lot of these religions is the worshiper and how they feel. So we should then ask, well, should worship services be emotional? Well, sure, yes, it can be if it's the right type of emotion. So let's look at two examples. One is Colossians 3.16. Here it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So when we sing to one another, and if you've heard congregational a cappella singing, it's very uplifting. It's very encouraging. We're admonishing one another. 
and it's once again emotional in that respect. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. So we are to stir up love and good works. We are to exhort one another. And so once again, those are some emotional aspects that are appropriate according to the Bible. So we don't want to have a, a worship that's charismatic and chaotic. I, you know, I kind of mentioned the Pentecostals earlier, where if you were to watch or attend one of their services, it I, I don't know how else to describe it, but it's just chaotic. People jumping around. It, it's just, you know, According to 1 Corinthians 14.10, Paul said in the context of worship, let all things be done decently and in order. So we're not to have confusion. 1 Corinthians 14.33, I mentioned earlier, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So there should be an organized worship according to the plan that God has set forth. So we don't see any indication in Scripture that worship was either celebratory or charismatic. So when we look at the scriptures of who should be the focus of our worship, God and Jesus. So Hebrews 13, 15 tells us, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And then, of course, one of the things the scriptures also teaches us as it relates to remembering the death of Christ, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, Paul tells the brethren there that Jesus asked that we partake of this Lord's Supper. We see that's on every first day of the week, according to Acts 20, verse 7. And what Paul says here is that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So the focus of our worship is remembering the Lord's death, praising God, offering prayers to him, and so forth. And that's the pattern that we must follow. Jeff? Yeah, one of the things that came to my mind as you were talking since you were referring to uh, an emotional environment, you know, my understanding based on what I've seen, you know, limited nature on, you know, like the internet, a lot of these worship assemblies are very large productions, if you will, on stage with bands, musical instruments, lights, singing, special effects, etc. which in my mind, honestly, is more the portrayal of like a modern rock concert of getting people really energized and in the aisles and, you know, clapping, et cetera, which again, as you mentioned earlier, you know, an appeal to the emotions, but less of an appeal to the intellect of, of following the scriptures, of reading, learning, studying, uh, et cetera. Uh, and as you said, often is intended to, you know, leave people feeling, you know, wonderful and energized and good about themselves. When in reality, a lot of what the scriptures teach is more about being humble before God and understanding our shortcomings and grieving over sin and repenting, et cetera. So I just, Brian, just thought I would, you know, throw that in there as well. Any other thoughts before we talk a little bit about ministries? Uh, no, let's go ahead and move on to that. Okay, so a term that's often, I don't know if I want to say overused or misused, ministries. I mean, you can go on the internet and you can find all kinds of like human organizations, disconnected from any sort of church that claim to be ministries. Within churches, you may find a proliferation of ministries, quote unquote ministries, children's ministries, youth ministries, music ministries, prayer ministries, 
men's and women's ministries, addiction ministries, clothing ministries, you know, medical and dental, etc. Now, first of all, we have to understand uh, within New Testament usage, ministry is kind of a general term. You know, it is uh, a general term that has a meaning of to serve, uh, often publicly. We see that with the priests serving in the tabernacle and in, later on in the temple. Exodus chapter 28, verse 43, Numbers 4, 3, you know, being referred to as they are ministering. References to an apostle and preacher, Acts 1, 25, uh, Romans eleven thirteen, Romans 15, 16. The reference to the benevolence to needy saints that, you know, Paul was collecting funds for uh, is, is ministering, 2 Corinthians 9, 12, and 13. Even Jesus's role, uh, you know, on the earth in public teaching, ministering, uh, Luke 3, 23, and continues to some, uh, some role in heaven, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. In fact, even refers to uh, governmental uh, public servants, public officials that are in a, a capacity of serving, uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 6. So it is a fairly broad term. So I guess the, the key question, Brian, that we have to ask ourselves is if a local congregation is going to do a work and they're going to call it ministering, serving, etc., is it an authorized work for the local congregation to do? You know, this takes us back to what's what's the basic work of the church? You know, what, what work did Jesus give local congregations to do? Well, certainly we have evangelism, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 14. And in some cases, uh, authorizing the payment and support of evangelists, preachers. I might also mention uh, elders who work hard at preaching and teaching, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, which points to, you know, a work of the church in teaching, preaching, you know, trying to reach the lost, trying to educate, you know, those who are saved. There's another work of the church to, you know, edify, to encourage, to build up, to teach, to train members, Christians as well as with a third work of benevolence. And this is probably where we see the greatest divergence, if you will, in what local congregations view as their work versus what the scriptures teach. As Brian mentioned earlier, you know, certainly in scripture, we can see examples of local congregations meeting the needs of needy members within their congregation, as well as meeting the needs of needy members in other congregations. Acts 4 verses 32 through 37, many of the brethren were willing to, you know, sell their possessions to help others, other brethren in need. Acts chapter 11 verses 27 through 30, again, a very similar situation, needy saints being helped by other saints. Romans chapter 15 verse 25 and 26, etc. And so that, in terms of local congregations, that seems to be the extent of the pattern. Congregations helping needing members, congregations helping needy saints in, in other congregations. First Corinthians chapter 16, 1 and 2, you know, comes to mind. That seems to be the limit of the pattern. Any sort of what we might call general benevolence uh, to the community, to non-Christians, you know, we do not see that pattern of the local congregation being charged with that responsibility. Individuals, certainly. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, what is good, that he may give something to him who has need, you know, in, in general, but not in terms of the responsibility of the local congregation. Also, I, I might also add, 
that the scriptures also teach that saints who are in need, Christians who are in need, really where it's possible should be supported by their own families first. <laughs> Uh, or, or maybe by other individuals before resorting to the church treasury. You can kind of see an example of that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 16. that says, if any believing man or woman has widows, and of course, that's the context of 1 Timothy 5, uh, that widows who lost their husband. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Now, certainly, use of funds given into the treasury, you know, can be used for preaching the gospel and evangelism, you know, edification, the benevolence to needy saints, and the means to carry out those commands, perhaps like a building, uh, paying for utilities, songbooks, etc. But in terms of the New Testament pattern, that's pretty much it in terms of the use of the Lord's money. Using the Lord's money for providing, you know, food, clothing, shelter for just anyone off of the street for running orphanages or old folks' retirement communities. You know, that's that's not within the scriptures, as well as any number of other quote-unquote ministries, if you will, that a lot of churches claim to be doing in the name of Jesus, even though he hasn't authorized them to spend their money in that way as a local congregation. Brian, any uh, follow-up thoughts? No, I, I really like how you outlined clearly what the scriptures teach, and I know we've said it a couple times, but I just feel like for most people, because of the good that's accomplished with these other ministries, they just are convinced, how could that not be acceptable? And it's kind of like musical instruments in worship. You know, oh, it enhances our singing so much to the Lord. How could that be wrong? Well, it's wrong because it's not authorized in Scripture, especially when God tells us to sing and make melody in our hearts. So anyhow, it just kind of keeps going back to the end doesn't justify the means, right? <laughs> so, Sure. All right, last section we want to consider here is, are we authorized to follow a mixture of the Old and New Covenants? And this is one where, whether it's modern religions or just denominations or other religions in general, this seems to be one of the most common areas where because there's a lack of understanding of the Scriptures or maybe a lack of respect of what the Scriptures teach, we are clearly under the law of Christ today. We are not under the old law, the old covenant, and so therefore we shouldn't be following any of it. Now, I'll qualify that by saying that there's still a lot that can be learned. I mean, Romans 15.4 tells us that it was written for our example, so we can certainly see what God thought about a lot of things, and you know, like the book of Proverbs is just so rich with practical advice, so that's not to say that we can't learn from it, but as it relates to what we will be held accountable to, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9 through 9 makes it very clear that it will be based on the gospel of Jesus Christ that we will be judged by and should be the standard that we live by. So in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, it was always God's intention to have a second covenant. And so he promised this new covenant that would be brought about when he sent his son to the earth to be offered as a sacrifice for sin. And as a part of that death, Jesus fulfilled the old law and the old covenant and brought about his covenant, the new covenant, what we might call the law of Christ. And so Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus did in fact fulfill that old covenant when he died on the cross. Now, for those who would want to keep elements of the old law, Paul says to the churches of Galatia in Galatians 5, verse 3, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. So what he's talking about there is that the Jews were trying to say 
that when the gospel was extended to all and the Gentiles were brought into the church, if you will, that they would need to be circumcised. They would need to keep elements of that old law. And Paul said, no, that law is no longer in effect. And if you're going to say that they must be circumcised, then you are debtor to keep all of the law. So in other words, they would have to keep offering sacrifices and doing those sorts of things. So the simple answer to the question, are we authorized to follow a mixture of old and new covenants? No, we must only follow the law of Christ or in our Bibles, the New Testament. That's what we will be held accountable to. Jeff? Uh, the only thing, uh, two things that I might add to that. And the first one is there are a lot of things that are relatively commonplace within a lot of religions that people just naturally accept is part of the law of Christ, part of the New Covenant, part of the New Testament, you know, part of modern day Christianity. It's not priests or incense and candles or special robes or, as you said, musical instruments, having an altar quote-unquote, having a sanctuary, quote-unquote. These are all Old Testament concepts. In fact, the second point I'll make, Brian, while you were talking, I looked it up. So we have in our previous podcast, episode 103 and 131, that I would refer our listeners back to, that gives a whole lot more uh, material, scriptures, etc., on this important distinction we need to make between you know, laws and patterns given to Moses for the for the Jews uh, in contrast to uh, the law of Christ. So there's a number of other religions uh, that we could have considered, either in the canopy of modern religions or cults or various denominations that we covered in, in previous episodes. For example, Islam, that one we addressed back in episodes 93 and 94. We could have talked to some degree about Seventh-day Adventism, which again was another group splintering off of the Millerite movement that predicted the end of the world in 1844. Of course, seventh day meaning they are binding the Sabbath from the old law of Moses and are following the alleged visions, guidance, and influence of Ellen G. White, who's claimed to be a prophet. Could have talked Seventh-day Adventists. You know, we could talk Christian science, Church of Christ scientists, again, based on the alleged inspiration of Mary Baker Eddy that physical disease is not really truly a problem with the body, it's a problem with the mind. Uh, and that you really need to rely very heavily on prayer and getting your mind straight, and your body will naturally heal itself. Of course, they're famous for their Christian science reading rooms. We could have talked about Christian science. We could talk about Salvation Army uh, as kind of a, a general religious group. Of course, they're very popular. Uh, very prominent around Christmas time with the, with the bell ringers. They're very much into humanitarian aid, what we would call general benevolence to non-Christians. They also have women preachers, which is another subject in and of itself, uh, not authorized by the New Testament. Interestingly enough, Brian, I found that uh, they do not partake of the Lord's Supper. Point being, we could have considered a number of other religions, but you know, I, I guess the, the key point, Brian, that we should make is if you keep coming back to the scriptures, New Testament pattern, find out what the pattern is, apply that pattern to your life, apply that pattern to your religious group you're a member of. You don't necessarily need to know the characteristics of 10,000 other religions that have all these divergent views. You know, stick to the truth and don't necessarily need to get sucked into all the various aspects of all the divergent religions we've been talking about in our series. Brian, thoughts? Yeah, that's such a key point because you're right. You could almost, for lack of a better term, drive yourself crazy, right? Looking at all of these different elements of all these different false religions. And 
Yeah, I think at a basic level, it helps us to understand some of the major tenants. And through this series, that's what we've really tried to point out is some of the more major tenants that if you were to get into a discussion with somebody that belongs to one of these religions, you at least recognize what some of their beliefs are. But as you just stated, Jeff, more importantly, you know what the truth says so that you could offer them book, chapter, and verse. And you can just ask them, hey, can we just sit down and reason from the scriptures? Let's just see what the Bible says. And I've often found that to be a very effective way to help them to understand the truth and to see the error of the religion that they're in. Uh, and the only thing I might add to that is, is even some of these groups may claim, as we said, allegiance to the New Testament or to the Bible, but they may take words and concepts for, that are in the scripture and give them their own meaning. And so, again, not only should we rely on the Bible, New Testament, but sometimes we also have to dig a little bit deeper in terms of Bible study, compare different passages, look at the definition of words, look at the context, etc., to distinguish true teaching from false teaching. That's right. And to realize it's our responsibility, because as we've kind of gone through this series, one of the other points that we really tried to make is that, you know, oftentimes these religions will say, well, you need to trust the priest or the pastor to tell you what the scriptures are teaching. In fact, I'm recalling a conversation what I had with a woman at work who was believing some false doctrine, and I encouraged her to read the book of Hebrews to show as the point we were just making, you know, we're no longer under the old law, we're under the law of Christ and so forth. She's like, no, no, I'll just listen to what my pastor says. And it's like, well, hold on. The Bible tells us that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. You know, 2 Timothy 2.15 says that we need to study to show ourselves approved of God, you know, rightly dividing the word of truth and so forth. So it's our responsibility, and, and we have to make sure that we're not just simply accepting. You would expect a, an evangelist and elders, as the Bible defines elders, to be qualified and certainly someone that we can learn from. Not saying we can't learn from them, but ultimately, if we're going to be judged based on what we practice, we have to make the effort to understand the truth, because that's why we're going to be held accountable to it, that we are expected to know it and follow it. Uh, agreed. So, Brian, do you have any other uh, takeaways from the series? Yeah, so let's, as we kind of wrap this up, and then we'll answer a couple questions. Important takeaways, I think, from this series is, you know, first and foremost, that God's laws are very specific and unchanging. In other words, we sometimes say the truth is absolute. And so, therefore, there is no need for creeds or man's philosophies or adding or changing the truth. It was given as complete and authoritative. There's nothing else that's needed. Let's look at a couple passages that kind of highlight this. John chapter 18, verse 37, for this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, this is Jesus speaking, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And then James 1.17, every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So God isn't sending additional revelation or changing what he originally sent through his son and the Holy Spirit. And then one final passage, Jeff, and I'll turn it over to you, and that's Hebrews chapter 13, 8 and 9. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. So Jeff, I think that's a powerful passage because it's saying the truth is absolute. Jesus is the same. So anyone that would try to convince you that, oh no, God decided he wants additional revelation or he wants to change what was originally taught in the Bible, they'd have to look at a passage like this and say, well, that's being carried about by various and strange. Right. And to that, I might add John chapter 16, uh, verse 13, where Jesus promises uh, to his uh, disciples, to his apostles, the uh, Holy Spirit would kind of guide them. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, he shall speak. He will show you things to come. Hence, the early apostles, prophets, given all truth, writing it down in the Bible, New Testament, as you point out, leaves no room for any modern day additional revelations by apostles or by prophets or by people who've alleged to receive visions by angels or etc. You know, Brian, I think one of the other key takeaways we've got is that, you know, we humans, we people have a tendency, <laughs> I'll say, to create our own standard of what's right and wrong, what's truth, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, a couple of scriptures, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29. Truly, this only have I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We see Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Those that call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, light for darkness. And the latter part that says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Uh, earlier, you talked about God being a, not the author of confusion. That was 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Beware, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Reference back to the Old Testament, you know, Judges chapter 2, uh, verse 10. Referring to when that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord. Which leads into a very sad phrase in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, and to some degree, we kind of see that today in all the thousands of different religious groups that claim to follow Christ, but are also divided in what they teach, what they practice, how they're organized, aspects of their worship, etc. Doing Basically, what they feel is right, even though it's wrong from the ends of churches, you know, just down the block from them, so to speak. Yeah, and a lot of that, it would seem to be, once again, is just because of ignorance. And I'm not using that in a derogatory way. I'm just kind of using that in a clinical way, saying that if you're not knowledgeable of the truth, then as you know, we've read, you can be carried about by every wind of doctrine. It can be easy to be deceived. In fact, the Holy Spirit warns us throughout the scriptures to beware of new or different standards of truth. And so as Jeff just read Colossians 2.8, where, you know, the Holy Spirit uses words like people cheating you by this philosophy, by the tradition of men, and not according to Christ. Well, that's really what it is. It's cheating you if they get you to believe something that's contrary to scriptures. A passage that I referenced earlier in Galatians chapter 1, where Paul here says, you know, if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached, let him be accursed. So that's pretty clear that God intended the Bible to be complete and the sole standard of authority 
So anything else that's introduced, that person, that group is to be accursed. It's not acceptable to God. And then Ephesians 5, similar thoughts in verse 6 and 7. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, it says, do not be partakers with them. So the Holy Spirit gives us some clear warnings here, not only to make sure that we're not deceived, but to understand that the wrath of God will come on those who introduce things that are contrary to his will. Jeff? Brian, in some ways, that's in stark contrast to a common phrase we may encounter. Join the church of your choice. Or we're all going to the same place. We just may be on different paths right. <laughs> to, to get there. Okay? And, and certainly within the canop- broad canopy of what we might call Protestantism, which we covered in you know, a previous podcast, there's this sense of, yes, I can be a Baptist and a strong Baptist, and you can be a strong Lutheran, and someone else can be a strong Methodist, and someone else can be a strong Episcopalian, etc. And we teach things that are contradictory to one another. That's okay, because we'll all go to heaven. The key point being is we really need to compare anything that we teach or practice or, or anything that our, our religious group or our local congregation or local preacher or quote-unquote pastor you know, teaches regarding quote-unquote truth, that we really need to compare that. Again, coming back to God's Word and, and reject anything that's been added to or taken away from God's Word. And you can find scriptures to back that up in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, as well as Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. You know, we certainly have a responsibility, if you will, toward truth. And Christianity should be based on truth, you know, to understand what that is. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth that's new american standard first thessalonians chapter 5 verse 21 test or prove uh, king james version all things hold fast what is good defend it jude 3 contend earnestly for the faith and to the point of drawing lines of distinction uh, ephesians chapter 5 verse 11 have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather expose them and of course here's where we always like to tell our, our listeners digging into the scriptures proper Bible study, Bible study approaches, techniques, definition of words, context, harmonizing all that the scriptures say on a given subject, and really have an earnest yearning, if you will, to find out what truth is, and not just go with the flow, so to speak, because you like it, your parents liked it, it's popular, it's very entertaining, you know, all those kinds of thoughts. Brian? Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up now with a couple of questions that have been submitted about these religions and their practices. And the first one comes to us, Jeff, for you from Mana. And she says, my husband and I are both Christians. We differ on our beliefs and practices regarding tithing. I believe that I'm instructed by the Bible to tithe 10% of my income directly to God through giving to my local church. My husband believes in tithing, but he believes that it's okay to give his 10% to charities. Some of those charities are Christian. One inadvertently brings people to the Lord Jesus, and the rest he gives to individuals in need. Who's right? Interesting. Yeah, it is. And I think that's, that's a good example. That a lot of religious groups today do practice what is called tithing, you know, 10%. Uh, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, a lot of other, you know, mainstream Protestants, etc., in fact, I did a, a, just a little bit of research from a study in 2018 
this research firm uh, interviewed about a thousand Americans, eighty-six of which, eighty-six percent of which, uh, had evangelical beliefs that said that tithe is still a biblical command today. At least of those interviewed that identified as as Baptist, eighty-seven uh, percent said tithing was today. Eighty-six percent of the Pentecostals for today. 81% of the non-denominational believers said tithing was for today. So tithing is a very, very common, very popular belief. And certainly prominent in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 14, where I think it's first mentioned, Abram at that time tithed to Melchizedek. Genesis 28, 22 with Jacob, certainly commanded under the law of Moses. Leviticus 27, beginning verse 30. Numbers 18, verse 21. Hebrews 14, beginning verse 23. But you know, the old covenant, the old law, the law of Moses has been, you know, superseded, if you will, done away with by the law of Christ. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, uh, in part says, a new covenant, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. So, as I mentioned a few moments ago, or earlier in today's podcast, there's a lot of things that religious groups will find in the Old Testament and bring forward priesthood, altar, tabernacle, sanctuary, religious robes, incense, choirs, instrumental music, and tithing. As you look at the New Testament pattern, uh, Christians are not commanded to tithe. Bottom line, you know, a fixed percentage, you know, t- typically 10%. Certainly they are commanded to assemble together with fellow Christians in a faithful congregation to worship God. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 16, they're commanded to Give into the local treasury on the first day of the week as they have been prospered. First Corinthians 16, 2. As they've been prospered. Ah, general giving. As they have been prospered. However that is, being prospered. Earned wages, investments, you know, inheritance, social security, welfare, child support, whatever. Um, but it's based first on giving oneself to the Lord and in proportion to their love. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 and 8 must be willing, as purposed in their heart, cheerfully, liberally. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8, verses 12. Second Corinthians 9, verses 7. 7 or verses 6 and 7. So, tithing is not taught. It's not part of the New Testament pattern. Giving generously, most certainly is. Tithing is not. There you go, Brian. Yeah, very good. And it's just a, another example of how, because there's just a, a lack of understanding, people understand, yes, we should give. But to your point, you know, tithing is part of the old law. It, it was never carried over. And even though we do still give, as you pointed out, First Corinthians 16 and so forth, it's not tithing. It's now giving as we have purpose in our heart and so forth. So yeah, appreciate that. Well, and some people today may say, you know, tithing 10%, 10% ish as a general guideline. And you know, we're not talk, speaking against that. But when you say we need to tithe is 10%. It's like, okay, well, what scriptures do you use to authorize that? Oh, back in Leviticus XYZ, well, now you're basing your modern religious practice on the Old Testament, which is no longer. I mean, that's part of Judaism. <laughs> I guess if you want to conform to Judaism as modern Jews do, okay. But that has all been superseded by the law of Christ. That's it. That's exactly it. Okay, Brian. So here's a question for you from Buddy. What specific elements in church worship are driven by tradition versus doctrine versus cultural observances? 
Yeah, I like this question. It really goes along with what we've been talking about in this series. And our listeners might remember a couple episodes ago, we were talking about the Catholic Church and how tradition plays a very important part of what they believe. And of course, going back to our very first podcast in the series, we touched on how not all traditions are bad. Certainly, if it's a tradition of men, well, yes, that's bad. But there were traditions that were passed down by the apostles and that are in our Bibles today that we should follow. So not all tradition is is bad, but let's start by kind of answering the doctrine portion of Buddy's question. So he says, what specific elements in church worship are driven by tradition, doctrine, culture, observances? So doctrine is really what it's about. In other words, what does the Bible teach us as it relates to what we do in worship? At a real basic level, the Bible teaches us that, you know, we assemble with other Christians on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, to remember the death of Jesus by partaking of the Lord's Supper. So if you go to Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29, you'll see there where Jesus, before he died, instituted the Lord's Supper or this memorial that we might remember his death. And then Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 tells us that Christians came together on the first day of the week to break bread. So in other words, to partake of the Lord's Supper to remember his death. And then we also see, you know, the, when they came together, they were also singing songs, Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16. They heard the preaching of the word. You can also see that in Acts chapter 20. And then they prayed and they gave back monetarily to the Lord. So they gave as they prospered to fund the work of the church. And we see that in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. So at a doctrinal level, that's what the scriptures teach us needs to take place when there's a worship service. And so what we've talked about in especially this episode as it relates to more contemporary, you know, we might call modern religions, is that in today's worship services, the focus is often on those who attend being what they call spirit-filled. So you'll th- see things like musical instruments or formal performances and other acts of worship that are to generate emotion among those who are attending. And so some might say, well, why is that a problem? I want to get emotional for the Lord. Well, true. You want to be emotional as in edified, like Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 talks about. We encourage and we're edifying one another and uplifting and so forth each other. But it doesn't talk about some of the types of ways that worship today, like musical instruments and productions and plays, generate emotion. Because our worship, our focus is God. God is the focus of our worship. His son's the focus of our worship in remembering his death. So anyhow, when it comes to contemporary worship, you're going to find almost all of that is something that the Bible does not support. And then the final piece here on tradition, you know, we were talking about good types of tradition. You know, there are some tradition like in our own church where we sing a certain number of songs and then we have a prayer and we sing a few other songs. And so that's a tradition that's been handed down within our own congregation that has no doctrinal implications. And so therefore that kind of a tradition is fine. You know, color your carpet or whatever you have, you know, there, there is no guidelines around that as it relates to doctrine per se. So that would be a a tradition that's just fine. But if the tradition centers around worship or the tradition centers around doctrine, then we have to take a look at it to say, okay, does that match what the Bible teaches or not? So anyhow, Jeff, kind of a longer answer to say that, yeah, it's all about doctrine. And we have to be careful about these different, especially modern worship styles, which deviate from God's word. 
good points. And, you know, I would certainly tend to agree with them. And, you know, fundamentally, uh, and for our listeners, keep in mind, use of the word worship. Now, that implies someone who is coming to and giving worship, but it also implies someone or something that is also being receiving that worship. Of course, within Christianity, we as Christians are giving the worship. You know, God is receiving the worship. And of course, you'd have to ask yourself, well, if, if God's the one being worshiped in our quote unquote worship services, has he told us what he wants? And are we willing to give him what he wants? As opposed to what we might want to give him. And I think that's probably a, a critical distinction to make as well. Because I think a lot of people, you know, will come to a particular religious group or, or local congregation, or whatever, and say, you know, I really like their services. Oh, it's just so wonderful. It's so beautiful. I walk away so, so entertained. I might not say entertained, energized. But wait a minute. That's not the primary point. The primary point is to honor God. How do you honor God? Well, you honor God by doing what he asked you to do. That's it. Yeah, that, I appreciate you saying that because that's the way we should think, really. And in fact, there's another article I'll, I'll also refer our listeners to on our website when it comes to you know worship specifically. If you go under the letter W on our homepage and you go down to a section on worship, you'll see there's an article entitled "What the Bible Teaches About Worship." So, if you have a minute, just encourage you to read that article because it really kind of goes through what we were just talking about in more detail. And then there's also um, just the general subject of denominationalism under the letter D. You'll see a part one, part two article that goes into a lot of what we've been discussing in this series as it relates to different denominations and deviations from the pattern that we see in the New Testament. So for some additional information on our website, biblequestions.org, if you look at the alphabetical index and select the letter J, you can find more information, questions that we've answered, for instance, on the Jehovah's Witnesses. M for Mormons, C for Church, the True, which kind of outlines, you know, what we've been talking about. You know, what does the Bible say the true church should be like? D for denominationalism. And then we touched on a couple podcasts. Let me just give a couple of others that kind of go right along with what we've been talking about. The proper use of the church treasury, we recorded in episode 115. Or if you go to our podcast page on our website under the section of giving, you'll find that episode. How to properly study the Bible, episodes 101 and 102, or on that podcast page under Bible study. And then the organization of the church. We uh, had a two-part series, episodes 17 and 18, where we talked about what the biblical organization of the church should be. And then you you can also go to our podcast page under church government. So hopefully you found this series to be beneficial. Our goal, once again, as we keep saying, is, you know, please compare anything we've said or anything that any other religion teaches with the Word of God and put that into practice. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at BibleQuestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at BibleQuestions.org.